So today on Bobby and Jens, we have one of the tallest riders ever to ride in the Peloton, one of the most loyal team members. And actually, he was part of the yellow jersey winning Tour de France team during his first Tour de France. Um, Jensi, Mickey Shard joins us today. How great of a chat was that? It was absolutely fantastic. And he was such a great, loyal rider to his team, to his team captains. And with all the respect and love, he is one of the reasons in my very last year that I was really sure, sure, I need to retire. Being in the breakaway with our guest tonight with Nikki Scher. It was fantastic and lovely and painful that day. But we will talk about it in a minute. Well, sit back and relax and enjoy our conversation with Mickey Shar. Welcome, Michael Shar, to Bobby and Jens. Thanks for having me. That's cool I to be here. I think that's the first time I've ever called you anything but Mickey. So the rest of the interview, listeners and viewers, Mickey Shar, not Michael Shar, Mickey. Man, so stoked to have you on the podcast. I was super excited when we were trying to find this date. And um, you actually said that, oh my gosh, I listened to all your podcasts. I'm totally excited. And now here you are, man. Thanks. Big honor to be here. I'm a big fan of your podcast. I'm really listening to pretty much all the shows because I lost all my training buddies in training and I have a lot of time myself or I had when I was still a pro. I retired two weeks ago. And in all those trainings, I listened to your podcast and it was super interesting guests. I really liked it. Well, well, you mentioned it. I mean, to our viewers and listeners that don't know, you just retired after over 17 years in the, in the Peloton. Um, you barely had time to clean your bike before jumping in, jumping into another position, which hopefully we'll talk a little bit about later. But um, that decision to retire, I think, is a very personal one. I think all of us have different stories. So how did you make this decision to retire? I think, like you said, it's, uh, it's quite tough as an athlete because we all have our own way of, of retiring and I had a close exchange actually with, with Fabian. He was helping me a lot in this topic. And yeah, I think it was, uh, wasn't easy. He explained me, yeah, some guys have it before they retire. That this is a bit of a hard time than the guys at the moment of the retirement and some after. And I think for me, I cannot speak about after, but it was quite rough or hard to make a decision on the beginning, like to the Swiss when I announced I had, a. Uh, a stage that ended in my village and there it was super emotional. I was never thinking it could go that, that way. And yeah, it was a way of saying goodbye to my, to my beloved sport, which I did since I was 18 years, I was a pro and I was very young and I did everything, everything for it. So it was actually nice that it meant that much to, to me that this sport was, was everything. When you mentioned uh, the words, a uh, rough time, um, maybe a quick tip to every still active athlete, if you approach this decision, it does help to have friends, strong family bounds, some partners, they can help you with that because it is more challenging than you think, right? I mean, we all three went through it. You just now, Bobby and me a little bit later. So I believe, right, having the right 
environment, it does help. Or what is your point on this? Yeah, I have the same opinion. I, I got a really good help with my family. Uh, actually, the best distraction, to be honest, because I have two super small boys. One is one year old and the other one is, is two and a half. So they're close together. And when I'm home, it's, it's full on. It's nothing, nothing about cycling. It's really day baby care. So that helped a lot. But then when you were at the races and certainly in those long training rides, the, the last season was, yeah, the, the, the thoughts come up. What do you do next? You know, for me, this was more the, the issue. I, I, I was totally satisfied with my career. And no regrets. Actually, I never won a lot, but I was always in, in teams where I was happy. I had good, good leaders where I could help for. So about this, I didn't have, you know, some guys, they have to re retire and have regrets or they have to retire on an injury. And I didn't have this. I'm just super happy. I could finish the career in a healthy, healthy place. And yeah, it was more the, the struggle about what I did, what I will do for the, the future. Yeah. Um... I remember my last real race was the Tour de Suisse, but you actually were honored by the other riders with the, the guard of honor. Um, you know, this is where the riders kind of stand on each side of the road and lift up the front wheels of their bikes and you ride through. That must have been something special because not everyone gets that sort of send off, do they? Yeah, it was surprising. It was really surprising. They gave me a small bike there at the start and I said, now you can ride at to the start. So I rode to the start and I saw not all the bunch, but pretty much a lot of guys with their front wheel in the air. And I was like, whoa, it was overwhelming. It was really a big, yeah, big honor for me for all the years that all these, these mates in the bunch, they somehow appreciated me without, you know, without having the biggest polymers. It was, it was quite nice. Well, I guess that's easy to explain. It's a well-deserved sign of respect for you and your career. I mean, you were always a great rider. You were always correct. You know, you were never yelling at people. You always fulfilled all the duties, all the jobs for the team. And for me, having raced in different teams than you, you know, you were a frightening enemy to have. I mean, you know, it was like, oh, Mickey Shea is going to ride tempo for two or three. You and Tony Martin were the two people go, oh, my God, you got them too. You know, you got Tony Martin or they got Mickey Shea. So he's going to ride for three people by himself. So, yeah, it's absolutely deserved that you have this um, sent off by, yeah, by the entire peloton. Of course it was. And, and the funny thing, Jens, is he got to ride a little kid's bike just kind of like you did, but... He didn't have to crash and just grab a little kid's bike off the back of a car. He was actually, it was part of the plan. That's for sure. But um, Mickey, you know, you, you mentioned it. You weren't the most prolific winner, but you were, as Jen said, one of the most dependable and loyal riders I personally have ever come across. But to many fans of cycling, they see the leaders on TV. They see them on the podium, but they rarely acknowledge the work that the workers or domestiques, as we say in cycling, um, give to their, their team leader. So tell us how you carved out that path of becoming one of the most loyal domestiques in, in the Peloton over 17 years. Well, that's a good question. It was a hard time at the beginnings. I had a, yeah, a start with, 
where I also was winning a lot as a you know as a young rider. Like most professionals, they only get a pro contract because they're they're winning winning under twenty threes or winning juniors, and then you get that contract. So I I, I was winning races, but then I, I was. Early, maybe too early. Nowadays, you cannot say too early anymore because the new generation starts all with 18, 19. But when I started with 19, it was oof, was, a, was another time. It was, was, was quite exceptional and it was too much for me. The first three years in retrospective, it was, was too early. And I got dropped quite early. But then I had good people around me. I had like uh, Gregory Rust from Fonak who who was a domestic already. He was like six years older and he did, he had already fulfilled his role. And he, he showed me in a, in a quite good way that you can f- find satisfaction in this role. You don't need to find only the victories. You can also be happy with, with your teammates winning. And this way of living, I was, yeah, I was thinking this can be something for me too. And then I, I realized, okay, I, I didn't have a good sprint in the time trials. I was okay, but I was never going for a win. You know, I was too tall, almost two meters to to go for GC. So I had nothing really, but I had I had a good mindset. I was I was having, you know, I, I loved the sport and I wanted to stay in it. And in these times, 2006, if I wouldn't have realized that I better help and work my, my way up, I think I wouldn't have gotten another contract. And now it was was good like this, and from year to year I got another contract. And at the end, it's yeah, it's a long career behind me. And yeah, I think I, what was always my my part was was the the helping, and I did it really just for my, my leaders. You know, there was my team was my family, but the, yeah, the rest of the bunch I also respected. But in a way, it was just, I always had a purpose, you know, I always did every move with with a leader behind and they started appreciating that, like Greg or at the beginning, Cadell, and they took me from race to race. And for me, the satisfaction was to be selected in a, in a Flanders or Roubaix or a Tour de France. This was the highlight for me. It was a kid's dream coming true to be in a tour lineup with all these guys from BMC, like George, you know, it was, it was a dream to be next to George in, in the tour and Cadell and, and Quinciato and Poorcard and all these guys. I never won a race again, you know, when you see their Palmares, but I could be part of them. And I, I realized it. It's better to help to stay there. And it was good. I wanted to save that question for later, but now that you already brought it up, the Tour de France 211, because Cadell ended up beating both Schleck brothers. So my team, we were second and third. Um, what are your memories on that? Like, how do you think you, you won it? Just because Cadell was the best, your team tactics were the best. H- how do you think from your side? How did you think you, you guys won it? Uh, sorry to say, Eze, but we won it on the last day in the time trial in Grenoble. <laughs> we had to do nothing. We just brought the yellow to Paris. <laughs> we, no, actually, we, you know how it is. We don't do nothing. If you have team number one, like now Jumbo and, and Dineos and, and UAE, the older, the helpers, they do a fantastic job. And only one gets yellow. So I think with George, we did a fantastic job. He was the road captain. He teached us so much. We did what we could. We were not favorites against you guys. But I think we had a fantastic team spirit. And that helped Cadell giving the confidence. He was relaxed. It was, you know, first time in BMC that he was that relaxed. And he just could 
trust us fully. We were all just there for him. And then, then he, he pulled it off in a time. Trial. Certainly he was the strongest, but I think we also did, did our part because the glue still sticks. You know, we have these, these teammates. We're still a lot in contact with, with these. And I think that was a bit of a magic, magic year. We tried to recreate it year and year after, but it never happened. So it was a nice first memory for me. It was the first time going in Paris, you know, when you come from this tunnel there up and all the people. And I was like, wow, this is a goosebump moment I will never forget. It was just maybe the best moment of my whole career. It was so good. Yeah, that's kind of setting you up pretty hard when you win or part of a winning team in your first tour. I mean, you did one Giro and one Vuelta before your first tour, but when you go in and lead the team and lead the Peloton into to Paris, that must be an amazing, amazing feeling. But, you know, you started at Phonak, you know, you were there as a trainee or what we call a stagiaire, and then you went to Astana for a couple of years, I think three years there. And then you were part of the BMC racing team for nine years. And basically kind of that team converted over to CCC, which was a very similar, basic same organization, just with a different sponsor for two more. And the last three years you've been racing on the French AG2R Citroën team. How has the sport changed over those years? And second part of that question, how did you adapt to those changes? I think I started with the easier part of the question. <laughs> the adapt adaption was for me never, never difficult. Like I always, I like to, you know, these marginal gains. I'm really into all the the new stuff coming out, all the new aero suits, the, the tubeless. I was the first of the team who tried the disc brakes and all that stuff. I was really, really on it always. And still now I am retired. And today I worked like almost an hour on my bike just to, you know, change some cranks and do some different plot. This is a bit my hobby. My father had a bike shop, so I think maybe it's a bit in my my genes. So there, the adaptation on my side wasn't so easy, but poof, the adaptation or the, the the change in our sport is is massive. It's really like now when I see the young guys coming up with nineteen, when I was in nineteen, they they're totally different. They're so much better prepared. I mean, they, you know, they they have these sports schools. They have, you know, they have the science, the nutrition science, they have the trainers, their performance coaches, they're, they're almost pros. When you see the Devo teams, they, they have the same setups like us. So when they turn pro, they're really ready. And when I was turning pro, I had no clue about the world. I did it. Rust told me last week, I did my first team time trial. I didn't finish. I thought in the start, they told me five guys count. So I was dropping off. Like, you know, did my job, dropped off, but I went to the bus. And then the bus driver said, did you cross the line? And I said, no, I didn't. <laughs> so I had to step out of the bus, back on the line. And, you know, this stuff you did as a Neo when you have no clue about cycling. But now the Neos, they come in and they, they really, sometimes they can teach me stuff about nutrition, about waiting the food, about, and I'm like, there, oh my goodness, I do this, you know, for 17, 18 years. And they, they teach me. Which is which is cool. I'm I'm open for that. I'm never the guy who says, "Oh, when I was a rider, it was different." And yeah, I think the biggest factor is the nutrition in my eyes. That it really has changed the, the fueling strategies. That the boys are so well fueled, they really can go 
all out and you know training the gut with it started with 90 gram carbs and then went to 100 120 and i don't know how high they are now 130 140 but that has really changed you know with the the feed zones and stuff like now when you see in the races it has it's not a proper feed zone in the middle of the race anymore you have every 20 every 30 k's you have an assistant like a soigneur on the side of the road with bottles and they are carbs and carbs is written on it so you really can fuel, 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 and you're totally charged the whole day. So it's totally different what we did at the beginning with the low-carb stuff. And now they, and that's a bit not so fair sometimes, you know. You see the big teams like uh, Ineos or you see Jumbo, and they, they have so much stuff and they have so much, you know, resources with cars and the logistic behind that they really can put every 30 kilometers an assistant with, with bottles and the boys are perfectly fueled. And I was in a smaller team now at the end of my career in Ajit Jazer. We didn't have these resources to, you know, to have every 30Ks a, a bottle with, with carbs inside or, or gels and stuff. And there you see a bit of difference. I don't say this makes them much better because they have certainly the, the higher level rider, but, you know, all the small details, they, they count nowadays. And yeah, they, I could go on for, for hours what has changed, but maybe it's too boring for you. Not at all. We're absolutely fascinated by it because just like you said, they are so much better prepared. They are so ready. They are so spectacular, these young kids. Um, but back uh, to your answer now. Um, so you also believe the budget is a key question to success. It's an important part. With a bigger budget, it is much more likely to have more success, right? I agree in a way, yeah. You have to, just, you know, the performance groups, they get so much bigger. They have so much more possibility to go to wind tunnel tests, to all the details that it opens up. And it's funny, I'm now, last week I was in Chicago, so I, I jumped right away in a new chapter. It started, a, I had the honor or the, that I can start now as a director in Trek, in Little Trek. And I was there in the meetings with the boys now and it's it's funny to change the sides and there was also coming up with, with the directors group director sportives group they also said the same that it's, it's really hard on the you know to keep up with, with the modern cycling that you have to have all these resources for the stuff actually you need you know you cannot go with three years and two mechanics anymore you need 15 15 people or 20 people to to provide all the at the end of this fueling strategy well, we're, we're going to ask you a little bit more about that, but I just want to share a story and Jens, help me out here. When, when we were on French teams, let's just describe what used to be in those famous musette bags. And the musette bag is like this little bag that has a little strap on it. The Swaniers are standing on the side of the road and you kind of grab it and it's got water bottles in it. It may have a can of Coke, but now help me out, Jensy. I remember on the French teams, there was like an apple tart of some sort. There was some really kind of gross little muesli bar in there. And um, maybe like a little sandwich with, with ham and cheese. Is, is that about right? I mean, it's been a long time since I grabbed one. Yeah, and some, some rice cakes, I believe. No, that, like that was later. That was later. I'm talking like, you know, the mm -hmm. early 2000s, right? Yeah. Okay, Mickey, you, so you said that feed zones are different. What Actually, is in much. those musette bags now? <laughs> oh, Bobby, that's funny. We still have this stuff. 
We have French team, you know, French team is tradition. We're not changing, we didn't change that much. We still have these pompots. It's so famous in France. I never had it before. It's like a little, it's really, it's not even real apple, apple mousse in, in little plastic. It's not a gel made by a nutrition company. We had these still, and then we had these little jellies, like jelly, jelly. Tartafui. Total sugar. Tartafui. Exactly. Mm -hmm. This little jellies we still had. So that's really traditional. I think this is from, from years, like, you know, everybody had it with you. We still have it. And now we have these this bottles. Yeah. I think the carbs in amount in the bottles has increased a lot. And then we have the bars and gels. And we have some teammates, they're just running on gels. They're running on 10, 15 gels. I don't know how to do it with the, you know, the gut. But really, it's, yeah, that's, I, I need some hard food from time to time just to relax my stomach a bit. And so, um, easy question. Is that still a thing that, like, um, Let's say Swiss riders or German riders, in my case, from different teams, they talk to each other. Hey, I got a little tartar pom. You want to exchange that against that stuff in your box? You know, sometimes people like in the Tour de France, three weeks, tartar pom every day in your musette. Every now and then you change with other riders. Is that still a thing? Or people go, no, it's my secret food and I'm not sharing with nobody. I still do it. I still do it pretty much every time. <laughs> of course. <laughs> not, many, not many guys reply. They're like, what, the, what are you talking? You're a dinosaur? No, no. I have my stuff and it works for me. Because, no, but I still, when there's something good inside, I still try to exchange a bit. Yeah, you guys are, are have iron guts, that's for sure. But you mentioned it a couple times. And just for our viewers and listeners, Mickey is... Almost two meters tall, which over here in the States means six foot five inches. Um, you were always one of the tallest riders in the Peloton. Um, I can remember a lot of people vying for your wheel because you put out a much different draft than, you know, somebody like Pogachar, for example, or Venigo. But um, did you ever have to do being so tall and so long? Did you ever have to make any like specific changes to your bike because i mean what size bike did you use and what sort of things did you have to do to adapt your position for it that's funny is it oh, so much stuff happened to my bikes because i was always too tall actually for the xl frame of every every brand and actually i was since 2006 on a bmc so it's a long time, always the same bike. And the XL frame, those 61 millimeter centimeters frame, I know pretty well. And yeah, but at the beginning, we made some funny, funny things. When I was, before Fornac, I was in Libres Guros in a Spanish team. And there was this, this boss, Spanish uh, Manolo Saiz. He was crazy about material. He let me do a Paris-Roubaix on a 170 millimeter stem where he put two together. So he, he cut two stems and he welded them together in the middle. And he said, this is your size because you have long arms. You need that stem. And I said, okay, fine. I was, you know, super young. I didn't say no. And then he said, and now you do party ruby on it. Then I was like, oh my goodness, this is going to break for sure. And he says, no, no, nothing ever breaks on the welding area. You know, it always breaks before or after. And I was like, okay, <laughs> he caught me. So, oh, we tried so much different stuff. Just yeah, 180 cranks, you know, then we had 190 cranks to test. 
and now everybody goes shorter and shorter. And yeah, I was always a bit too tall, but at the end, I, I think got always over the years a bit more relaxed my position from a one fifty to a one forty stem to now it's a one thirty. So always a bit getting more ready for retirement. Um. I believe, um, I guess Bobby experienced him as well in the peloton. Good old Manolo Sainz was a little bit of a dictator, wasn't he? Yeah, he told you what to do. He asked me once, you want to be a good pro or a bad pro? Because he came in my room and checked my suitcase. Because I had chocolate. I was three, six months in Spain and I had chocolate. I was a Swiss guy. My mother gave me lots of chocolate in it. And he, he checked my suitcase. He said, you want to be a good pro or a bad pro? I said, yeah, good pro. And then he said, yeah, but then you cannot eat all this chocolate. <laughs> well, having knowing him and seeing pictures of him um, from memory, he probably ate your chocolate that he stole out of your suitcase. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's true. Hey, um, Nikki, talking about um, different teams now, um, it's a little bit of an unfair question, but would you have a favorite team of the teams you have gone through Or as the teammate go, oh, that was just terrible. And, and why would that be? No, I was certainly the BMC times. I was, you know, I made so many friendships. For me, it was not always about, only about racing and uh, on the bike. I was always off the bike. It was super important for me to have the fun on the dinner table. That's actually what I always say, what I'm going to miss maybe the most, is to have seven different nationalities on one table. And everybody has a, a war story to tell after his race day. It's just hilarious. You know, everybody had different experiences. And this ex I experienced the most in BMC times. And also Jim Okowitz, who always gave me the contract. He sometimes even said, Mickey, yeah, this is your new contract. And, you know, one part is also a bit to, to put the, the, the old BMC DNA again, or a bit, you know, living that, that, that BMC from 2011 on. And it was... Yeah, it was always good fun. And, but actually, I couldn't say one team was bad or, you know, uh, no fun. It was always good times. I think athletes in general, they always have, have a good time. We make the best out of it. They're super positive people. And that's, that's quite cool. I think one of the um, keys to being on a team, being happy at the team is, is having, you know, that, that wingman. You know, Jens was that wingman for me. Um, you had a very close relationship with Greg Van Evermat. Can you share some background on how you guys became so close? I mean, you guys spent a lot of time together on, you know, what, uh, most of your career. Yeah, we got a lot of time. It's, it's true. We have, um, since 2010, October, we, we met. Or we, yeah, he came. I was one year earlier in BMC and he, he joined. And then we spent the first years not too much. And then more and more over the years, the friendship has built. And it was really good fun and really appreciated his, you know, personality. It was not only what he did on the bike. I always treated him as a friend, not as, you know, as what he did uh, with his Palmares. And they were always gave everything for him because he was one of those leaders who you knew he gave it all for you too. So we came over the line, he suffered. He, you saw it in his face that this guy, he, he gave it all. You know, he had nothing, nothing left in the tank. And that's, that was so rewarding over the years. I think we had, we had very different in characters. It's quite funny. Like on the bike, I always had to be the bad cop and he was the good cop. 
And, you know, I was always fighting, like, the bodyguard for him in front of him. And he was Mr. Nice Guy. He could take advantage of that. So, yeah. And off the bike, we were, I think, more similar. That we, we had the same interests. We, you know, wanted to discover a bit the areas around the races. It was not just sitting in a hotel room and putting their legs up in the air. We always did... <clears throat> Oh, was travel loops. He was uh, he was crazy about his travel loops, to you know discover a nice old town or go and see something or do a nice boat trip in Quebec or just some something fun. And we took all teammates with us, and I think that built a bit the group, and that gave a good good spirit. And yeah, I think it was a big change for us because the last I don't know ten twelve years we spent over two hundred days almost 200 days together same room always you know we have this habit we always sometimes we choke we sleep most more next to each other than to our wives and it was yeah it was good times it's gonna change i think the, the friendship will last forever that's for sure but our lives gonna go at the moment different ways but i think maybe in the future we we're gonna see us more again Um, I just quickly want to jump back a minute um, because I'm so triggered by that welding and your head stem for Roubaix. Did that actually survive? Did you make it all the way to the finish line with that welded head stem? Yeah, I got fourth. Got fourth in Roubaix on the 23 on that thing. It was was working, yeah. <laughs> maybe if it wouldn't be that long, maybe I could have won. No, I <laughs> joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, who knows? We'll be right back after this short break. Now, back to our chat with Mickey. So now, now we got to get to it. Um, you know, when we were setting this up, you mentioned that you took a new job and you just said, hey, I'm going to be in the States next week because I took a director sportif or DS position with Lidl Trek. Wow. Didn't take long to, you know, get from one side of the barriers back onto the other. Uh, how did that come about um, to begin with? We'll start from there. Yeah, it was a long process. I think over all the years, uh, I always looked a bit at directors, this could be an opportunity or a, a job I would like to try it out once because I was really into tactics and I was, I'm not sick of traveling. I'm not, you know, I, I like the sport. I'm just really my passion. I, I love this world tour. I love the, the racing. I actually, the last three years of my career, I started like a diary. I started uh, after every race to put my notes down, to see a bit my experience, to put it in, you know, just to say goodbye to the sport, to say in my way, goodbye to what I love that much. It was just a way of, I don't know, working with it. And after one, two years, I start talking with, with some people about what I do. And they say, well, this would, and they, some people read it and they say, well, this would be super, you know, handheld for a director sportif because it's easy to forget. You forget the corner in the Quartermont in, in Flanders. You forget a bit, you know, little details. So I, I put this stuff down. First for myself, or maybe now in the future I can use it. But yeah, I was always a bit... You know, in, in the back of my mind, I looked into this job a little bit. And now I got the opportunity from Luca Quercilena. He was my former coach from the Swiss Federation. You remember when Fabian was uh, with Trek? 
he had uh, Luca as his coach and his director sportif in the Swiss Federation. And there I did the Olympics in 2012 with him in London. And we had a good friendship. And over all the years, I always had a, a good connection to him. Like uh, when I saw him on the truck, you know, I had a little conversation. And it was, 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 was quite, uh, I always appreciated when he was around. And he gave me that call or... Greggy Rast actually was like this. Rasti is my my sparring partner from the past. And he's a director sportif in, in Trek. And he told me there is one spot free, you know, uh, if you if you want to take it. Because he saw me doing it. Because we were quite similar in, in our careers and what we did. And then go and get the, give a call to, to Luca. And so we, we, we reached out. And uh, it was pretty clear. It was 10 minutes. It was like, okay, all good. If. If you want to come, you come and uh, give you seven days to decide. And I had those seven days. It was like three weeks ago. I I reached out to some other opportunities I had. And yeah, I, it was actually at the end my only option. And I I did, did decide for, for Luca. And I'm super happy because this, this group is super experienced. And, I, and all the other directors, I know them like, you know, Kim Anderson, Stephen De Jong, all the guys uh, I know from from the races. Either I raced with them, like Maximo Four, or I I know them from the car. And it's it's cool to be there. I'm really happy. It's a new new challenge. It was not easy because Jensi, I think you're in in Austrian holiday, no? Because I had to I had to cancel my holiday. My wife was not so happy. I was like, ah, you know. New job. I had to, and Luca said, okay, if you come, you go to Chicago on Monday after the career. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll explain this. And after a long career, we really looked forward to a little holiday. But now we got to postpone it. And all good. All good. Alrighty. Before I come to my question, here is a little non too serious tip for you. If you come to race, let's say you'll be the director in Perry Nice. You go, hey, guys. If I tell you to be in a breakaway and you're not in a breakaway, the doors of the bus at the finish line will be closed. You will get a dry jersey and a fresh bidon and off on the bike to the hotel because only the painful lessons stick to your mind. You will gain a lot of friends if you do that. But of course, that wasn't serious. Um, no, my question is, hopefully, I guess, you are aware of the fact that sports director these days, it is much, much more than just driving the car. You know, you got to go on Google Earth. You got to check the weather, the wind, a street viewer, you know, to see the finish lines and all that. It's a lot more time involved in that. If you would have gone five hours training in your years as an athlete, probably now it's five hours to prepare every stage every day, right? Have you had a little bit of an idea of that already? Yeah, they told me that uh, one stage needs one day of preparation. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> As a rider, you're not aware of this, you know, you just sit in the meeting, it takes 30 minutes and you think uh, less, but yeah, it's, it's a day of preparation. So we'll see how that will figure out, but um, I, I look forward. I think it's kind of a good challenge. Speaking from experience, um, after I retired, I took a coaching slash um, director sportif job for the team that I retired from. So I'm there with the guys that I was in the bus with. Now I'm in the car. And that was awkward because when I'd walk into the breakfast or dinner table, I'd 
just automatically go to the rider's table or I'd take food off the rider's buffet. And I was like, oh, wait, I got to sit over here and I don't get that that really fancy food. I have to have the steak and fritz. But the biggest, the hardest thing for me was I drove the second car in Perry Nice in 2009. And to our viewers and listeners that don't know, second caravan is pretty relaxed. There's not much going on. Everything's getting done in the first caravan. Unless, 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 unless one of the riders from the team go into the breakaway. So they normally, depending on who it was, they send the second car with the spare bike of this rider up to the breakaway. The only problem is you have to pass the first caravan, which isn't so bad because the guys move over, but then you have to pass the Peloton. And boy, oh boy, Mickey, that first time passing the Peloton was the scariest thing I ever did. Our late uh, friend, Chris Anker Sorensen, was in the breakaway. We're down near Nice. I'm you know, moving up the side, beeping the horn because I used to hate those, those directors that would just lay on the horn. I was trying to stay on the road in order not to kick up the rocks into the Peloton because I remember hating that. But nothing can, can compare to passing the Peloton the first time. So other than that, what do you foresee being your biggest challenge stepping into the car? I don't know if they have such a big seat, you know, for my long legs. No, I think I, I'm also scared <laughs> of that moment. <laughs> I think uh, to overpass the peloton is going to be tricky. But I like driving cars. I like it a bit. Maybe, I don't know, it's going to be first. Maybe I look for an echelon day, you know, when they're all sitting on the right. And then I, check, I take them on the left when nobody sits there. Sounds like a plan. Hey, um, before you get into all that stress of driving the car behind and in the middle of another 180 crazy bike riders, let's talk about one as a highlight of your career, was it Tour of Utah 2014 when you won the stage? Right? Yeah, you won, it was two seconds before the chasing bunch, right? Like, tell our viewers, take us through the day a little bit. Let them all share this moment. It was, a, oh, it was a, my favorite race already before I won that stage, Tour of Utah, because my trainer, Max Testa, is living there in Park City, and I did a lot of uh, training camps. In Park City, and so I really loved the state. That and always good memories, good times there. And this Tour of Utah was always like a week or two weeks after the Tour of France. It was not easy, you know, with the jet lag to make it. But I had always so high motivation to be there. And yeah, it was this the second stage? I think it was going in the break. I had a good day, and I I never won a bike race, ever a pro race before. But you know what was funny, Yenzi? You were in the break with me. And I was like, oh, no, Jens in the break for sure. He's going to win. He's going to smoke us all here. You know, he's so much stronger than all of us. And we were going to these beautiful red rocks. I remember it was like yesterday, up and up. And I had good, good legs, you know. Was, and then I, said, I thought, thought, oh, Jens here, you know, he's so good. But you were moving on the bike. And then you said by yourself, today is not my day. And I was like, oh, really? That's got to be, you know, you... And then you, you went back to the bunch quite early and somehow Joey Roskop and me, we survived and, uh, yeah, I attacked him on the last climb was, was feeling good. 
and uh, had this nice motorbike. Oh, it was so funny. This guy he had no clue about riding, you know, with sidewind. And it was sidewind from the left, and he completely took me out of the wind. I was just, sit, you know, cruising, like two meters next to him, but actually he filled, but he was taking I was like, okay, good. <laughs> Thanks. So he took me out of it, but then I paid. The karma hit me back hard in the downhill. You know, sometimes when you make a hard effort and then you're really on the limit or over it and you take a downhill, you have recovery for the legs and somehow they don't... When you go again, they didn't start again. I had these cramps and oh my goodness, the last 5Ks I had to make, it was flat over the downhill to the finish line and I had nothing left. I had cramps left and right. I think my ears were cramping. I don't know. I was really, really on the... Like I never suffered before my whole life. But like you said, yes, you made it by like, I don't know, 10 or 20 meters before the bunch. And it was it was a funny, funny memory, the Tour of Utah. If I can quickly add one, there was one of these days, Mickey, and I love you to pieces, where I went, oh, I'm so glad I'm retiring, man. These kids are so strong. You know, you basically wrote me off your wheel. That hasn't happened often in my career. I'm like, oh, this hurts. It, it did hurt my heart more than anything else. You were on a fantastic day, I have to say. You were absolutely the strongest. And it, I was happy to see you pulling it off so close. But yeah, that was, um, I went back early because I realized I'm getting too old for this. So Mickey, compliments on that win. But yeah, it did rub it into me that it's time for me to stop, my friend. See, even Yenzi on a bad day would still be in the breakaway. And then, you know, just pull up the parking brake. You know, if I had a bad day, I wasn't even close to, to getting off the front of the Peloton. But let's talk about your, your, your other win as a pro. You became national champion the next year. Um, what is it like winning the national championships? Are the tactics different? Actually, in Switzerland, we do it every year, another guy. We just go there, have a nice barbecue in the morning and... Uh during the day and then we go and every year there's another guy that jersey. That's actually one guy really seriously asked me this question. He said, it's so funny in Switzerland, every year you rotate, you give it from one to the other. You're so nice to each other. It's not always the same. And it's true. When you look at the, the, the race, you know, the history of our race, everybody had it once. It's, it's so nice, but you know what? It's not true. We, we race full gas. It's one of the hardest races of the year. We go all out. You have no friends. It's so, it's for me the most frustrating day of the year, actually, the, 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 because the whole year when I see Stefan Kuhn is a good friend or I see Dillier and we we race and every day we go in a hard race like Paris we you know we chat we have so good times this is it's the little bit the islands in the race where you find your your, your good friends and then there's the Swiss championships day and you have to fight each other for that that jersey so it was never never really a pleasant day for me but once i could pull it off and it was it was cool to wear the jersey you know the this, this cross, the Swiss cross, they always call me the Swiss ambulance in the, the this famous speaker in the US. He's so funny. Oh, it's his name, Dave, Dave Toll. He's always the Dave Swiss Tolan. ambulance. Yeah. <laughs> Mickey, um, if you could choose, would you rather prefer to be a sport director specializing on the classics or you want to go to the Tour de France and be there in Paris on the Champs-Élysées? Oof, good question. My my heart is for the classics. I really love these races. I love the Belgium atmosphere. You know, I had a. We were always together with Greg and this one year, Tiba. Maybe you know him. He has. A, we call him Toro Rosso. He's a guy with a 
He's very redhead. He's a really funny guy. He's hilarious. He was every year with us. And he is a true Belgian. You know, he, he teach me everything about the Belgian culture. He brought me the, the Belgian West Flatern beer the other time. And he, he brought me to his house after Greg's retirement party. So he, he really is a born year. He's the best person you could find. A really, really good, my best friend. And we have so much fun together. And he teach me everything about the Belgian history, you know, in cycling and how important this, this is in Flanders. So for me, Flanders is, or the Flemish classics is something, a big topic. But Greg always said, Mickey, you're not so good in the Flemish classics. You're a better cheesy, you know, cheesy helper than a classic helper. And I think he's right because I'm not explosive at all. I just could do a good job, you know, going long and steady. But I was on those, those one, two minutes, uh, Paterberg and uh, Koppenbergs. It was a, good, a bit against my nature. But, you know, you can do a lot. You make up, make up with motivation. Again, um, something new that not everybody knows. You just don't get to be a director sportif overnight. Uh, you have to go to the, uh, the UCI director sportif course um i did that and i think it was five days long back then we went to egla switzerland at the uci headquarters and you know it was like going back to school and taking notes again um are you going to take that course this year or are you going to wait until next year to do it i'm uh, gonna do it in two days uh, or three in monday after chicago <laughs> My off season gets better and so better. So vacation no, with your wife—that—that's—that's yeah. that's not going to happen this year. It sounds like you're going to be at training camp after that. Uh, I got to be there, and she's like, you know, it. She, actually, I'm lucky. She's the best person. She's. I always had a, you know, I had one. How you say it in English? One. Pre, one rule, in a way, that I said when I retire. It's time for my wife to to have a word because all the years as an athlete, you're quite selfish. You're always looking for your, you know, recovery, your training, your in the afternoon, the fatigue. You can don't play with the kids as, as energetic as you would like to because this job is just, it's, it's hard, you know, it's fatiguing you. So I said to my wife, the moment I announce my retirement, we have to have a talk and it's up to you to decide if I continue in this in this cycling circus as i always call it or you say hey i want you more home i want you to be here for the kids and you you know i want you to have a job in 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 switzerland from nine to five and she she said no i want you to to go back to the sport because she sees me with such a big passion she prefers me to be gone for a week 10 days two weeks come home being happy with what i did than being frustrated with with something else, so I got I got the free pass and uh, gonna keep keep doing what I what I love. She is a smart woman. She's a keeper, my friend. Honestly, compliments to her. That sounds really really good. Awesome. Hey, um, now big question. You have been riding in the peloton this entire year, right? Now this next year you're gonna be a sport director. Your team. Um, little track just signed Tao Quigenhardt. I know he is still on a way to recover, but in case he is ready for the Tour de France, in the best possible scenario, Mickey, what is your idea? What is your plan to win against Pogacar, Vingegaard, 
or even a pole. You're all going to be at the tour. How can anybody, any normal team, beat them? Would you already have an ID there? Well, we have to bet the tires so we don't flatten the gravel and then they lose like five minutes and boom, Tower is winning. Easy, no? Now I have full confidence in Tower. What he showed this year in, in Trentino and in the Giro was wow. And all the, his career, I, I loved him already in action. When he was a, a young pro, you know, he raced with us in Utah, Colorado. Hey, he's such a smart guy. He makes a group. He's, he's really, it's about, you know, building a group also in the GC. And uh, he, he, he got that. He does it. And he, yeah, he's, he's likable. He's really, and that, that, these are the guys you like, you know, the, the, the helpers are liking more to, to give this little extra percentage because he's so likable personality. So I think the team spirit and the gravel section. An easy topic. We talked at least five times about that family holiday that didn't happen yet. Where do you actually want to go? Where do you and the kids want to go on that famous holiday now? We had a booking in Austria in a nice family hotel. And, uh, but the problem is the later it gets, you know, it was October, it was still good weather. And then in November, and it's maybe now it's beginning December. We are a bit worried about the weather. So maybe we go to some warmer place. Like uh, we were thinking about the Canary Islands or Mallorca, just to have a little bit of more security about the weather. But yeah, that's that's a decision by my wife. She she has a free 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 pass there. She can say where she wants to go. I'm I'm just happy to join, and I'm also happy to first time join without the bike. You know, I'm just traveling always with the bike to all the camps and all the train, all the family holidays until now. Mostly they were with a bike, and it's gonna be just something different. Maybe start start running a bit. But yeah. Well, Mickey. You know, it was great knowing you as a rider. It's going to be really cool following you in your new profession. We really appreciate you finding time uh, two days before the UCI DS course to squeeze us in here today on Bobby and Yen. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, guys. It was a big pleasure. Big fun. Now, if you can't get enough cycling in your life, why not check out the Velo Femme on Motion pop-up gallery presented by Jello New on Friday, November 10th. If you're near Boulder, Colorado, head to the Scratch Labs Cafe and check out some of the incredible work captured by some of the best female cycling photographers on planet Earth. Not only will you get a chance to see their work, you will also get a chance to catch the Fama Motion documentary film in collaboration with Shimano. Join us to celebrate and honor these women on the move. Ride bikes, look at amazing photos, watch the film, enjoy adult beverages, eat delicious food from Scratch Labs Cafe, and take home goodies from Shimano, Jelanu, and us at Velo. Well, That's all our time for this week. Huge thanks to Miki for being our guest. Thanks for listening. Please don't forget to give us a five-star review and make sure to share us with your friends. The show was a Velo production in association with Shock Giraffe. This episode was produced and edited by Mark Payne. Remember to check out the video version of this podcast by heading to the Outside Watch YouTube channel.